0: This time, I'd like to introduce you to our guest speaker for today, and I'm here to to give him a a warm welcome. Dr. David Barker is a professor at Heritage College and Seminary, my most recent alumni, and uh, I actually carefully avoided your classes, I guess, (laughs) but uh, he's one of the most respected professors at Heritage. He's been there since 1978, and uh, he teaches mostly in Old Testament and pastoral studies, and he's got a wife, Lorraine, five married kids, and 13 grandkids. I think that was the same as last week. So we're sensing the theme here. I got to get someone next week that has 13 grandkids, and we'll, we'll be good to go. But uh, uh, Dr. Barker, would you come up and uh, share with us? Uh, he's going to share with us from the Psalms, one of his expertise, and I know that you're going to be blessed by that. Thanks for being here. Yes, he avoided me. (laughs) And that is his loss. He needs to know that. And so you're going to have to send him back to school so he can take some classes with me to get it right. (laughs) Yes, I am from Heritage College and Seminary. Uh, Heritage College and Seminary is a Bible college and a seminary. Uh, the undergraduate program offers BREs and BTHs and Bachelor of Church Music. Those are the three primary degrees we offer. Uh, and if you're a high school student or a parent of a high school student and you're looking for uh, a place to go and maybe God is calling you, maybe even just doing a, a one-year kind of in-between uh, year between uh, high school and the next stage of life, you are more than welcome to come. We do have a, a one-year program for students who come after grade 12 and then, then go on to wherever else God is calling them after that. That winds, that proves to be a really, really uh, effective and, and, good, uh, and, and good program. So that's the Bible College. Uh, we have a seminary. Matt's part of that, uh, offering uh, a Master of Theological Studies and a Master of Divinity. Um, and uh, my story... And I know we have a number of university students here. Um, my story is um, high school, university, um, not in Ottawa or Carleton, uh, one of your competitors, University of Guelph, and a Bachelor of Science at the University of Guelph and seminary. Fascinating journey uh, to take a science degree Uh, into a seminary. It took me about a year to figure out what this whole seminary thing was all about. Um, I hadn't written an essay paper in ages, and now all of a sudden I'm into this, writing these theological papers. Some of those first ones were absolutely disasters. It's a wonder I passed. But, uh, you know, we, we get a number of students who come to us uh, out of uh, a university with a BA or a BSc or some other kind of degree. And uh, inevitably, they proved to be really, really good and effective students. So something to think about. God may well be calling you into a career uh, that you are tracking on now, uh, but sometimes he does interrupt our path, and that's what he did for me. He interrupted my path. I was pursuing a career in that direction, and some circumstances came into her, my life, our lives, uh, my wife and myself, and it was a, a complete change in direction. And I haven't recovered, <laughs> neither has my wife. <laughs> she thought she was marrying a geologist, and she wound up in the middle of the USA in some remote town in north-central Indiana while her husband was going to seminary. That, that was two months after we got married. <laughs> Unbelievable, and she's still with me. 40-plus years later. Anyhow, well, so that's a little bit about the Bible college and the seminary. Uh, there's a display out the back. Uh, there's a bunch of pens. Grab one of those. Please, I don't want to take them home. And uh, if you've got any questions about what's happening at the school or what you might be interested in, I'd be more than happy to uh, chat with you. I am going to hang around for the potluck. Um, I've got about a six-hour drive home. I think I've got to go about the farthest of anybody to get home. And so I might as well get a lunch, free lunch while I'm at it. So I'm gonna hang out with you guys here and have lunch before I take off for home. Uh, I live in Kitchener. Uh, and speaking of that, I do know that I am the biggest barrier between you and your lunch. So I'll try to make the next two hours as painless as possible. <laughs> <laughs> you do realize that my normal lecture time is three hours, so uh, <laughs> settle in, we're going for a ride. The book of Psalms, as Matt mentioned, uh, has been a critical part of my life uh, for many, many years, for decades now. Um, my introduction to the Psalms beca- uh, came via a, a crisis in our family, a health crisis that was uh, pretty tough to deal with. And in God and his providence, um, at the very same time in the seminary, uh, I got an assignment to teach a course in the Psalms. Never taught them before. Hardly read any of them. And uh, this began a journey in this book of the Bible that has become the heartbeat of my personal spirituality. It has become the absolute core of how I understand God, how I understand myself, how I understand the world, how I understand worship, how I understand piety, faith, all those kinds of things. It's huge, in my view. And the wonder wonder about the Psalms is that they give us a full-orbed voice for worship. I, I, I think I heard someone say that you are reading the Psalms during prayer meeting. Bless you. Praise God for that. The psalms have this breadth of, of response to God. Yes, we know about the praise psalms. Praise the Lord, praise the servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. We know about those. Now, we know about the thanksgiving psalms. We'll oh, give thanks the Lord, for he is good, his mercy endures forever. We know about those. We know about the psalms of trust. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We know about those psalms. They're pretty quick to fire up on the uh, on the screen or open them in our Bibles or use as an opening doxology for a worship service and that kind of thing. But there are other categories as well. We can talk about royal psalms. We can talk about kingship psalms. We can talk about wisdom psalms. But the fascinating category that we don't talk a lot about are what we call the lament psalms. And it may come as a bit of a surprise to us, but the lament psalms are the single largest category of psalms. There are more lament psalms than there are praise psalms. There are more lament psalms than there are thanksgiving psalms, or psalms of trust. And yet, these are the voices we rarely hear in the life of the church. We read one this morning. And, I guess, my, my, my message, my appeal is that this voice does need to be heard in the church. This voice does need to be heard in the mix of our worship. This voice does need to be given to all of us because of our journey inevitably of faith is heart. At multiple levels. And we can talk about what those might be. And it's fascinating because the Apostle Paul said to the church in the first century, we are to sing to one another in songs, hymns and spiritual songs. And I didn't hear him say, but only sing the praise songs or the positive ones. My sense is that he wanted us to sing all of them. And so That's what I want to explore with you a little bit uh, this morning. It's a psalm that has spoke powerfully to me in my own life, and I trust that when we're done, it will be speaking to you powerfully in yours. So I invite you back to Psalm 3. Find your Bibles or your electronic devices, whatever you have for a text. Alright? So find... Psalm 3. I'm just going to read it quickly again. I know we've read it once. I'm going to read it again just quickly. Then it's going to take you on a journey. I'm in the process of writing a book entitled The Stories and Songs of David. And uh, what I am doing is I am taking all the psalms that have a title wrapped around David's story. And I'm reshaping the story in my own way, hopefully remaining biblical, and reshaping that story, telling that story, um, in a kind of Stuart McLean kind of way. Anybody know Stuart McLean? Vinyl Cafe, the best, Canada's storyteller. And if you're not familiar with that, get with it. (laughs) Go online And listen to the best story he ever told called Dave Dave Cooks the Turkey. The best. All right, okay. Some of you are connecting, some of you go, what on earth is he talking about? All right. And so I'm 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 in this process of putting together this book with stories and songs of David. And so one of them, one of the chapters is gonna be what we're dealing with today. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Now, it's interesting when we read out of the ESV... Uh, A few moments ago, those were statements. He does arise. The, The the text actually is imperatives. These are demands and callings on God. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be upon your people. Now, what I didn't read and what needs to be read is the title. And if you go back to the very top of the psalm, you'll notice that it says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. That is the context of the psalm. That is the life situation out of which this psalm was written, spoken, prayed. story. The news was a bombshell. Absalom, David's son, had mounted a coup against his father, king of Israel. Absalom had been third in line to the throne, but now he was first. He had murdered Amnon, the oldest son of David, in a sheep-shearing massacre for brutalizing his sister Tamar. Kiliav, the second, the second in line, has fallen off the pages of history, and so he's not a factor. So for Absalom, the throne was his, truly his, in time. But in time was not good enough. He wanted it now, right now. He hated his father because of the way he had been treated after the revenge murder of Amnon. He had been exiled and ignored and treated with total silence by his father David, and he hated his father David. So, under the pretense of keeping a promised vow to God, Absalom headed south to Hebron, the place where his his father had been proclaimed as king, and gathered both people and an army around him. It's not hard for him to do. He was literally tall, dark, and handsome. His hair was called kabod, or glorious. And by the way any comparison with another promising person in Canada is purely unintentional. <laughs> I just added that line today. <laughs> <laughs> he got it cut once a year. And when he did, he weigh, it weighed a full five pounds. But his hair would be the source of his demise and death. But that's part of the story that we don't have time for this morning. He was good-looking, wise, and immensely popular with the people. An attractive alternative to his father. And so a messenger has run from Hebron to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, about 20 kilometers with the news. Absalom is on his way north to Jerusalem, up to Judean Ridge route, and he is gathering more and more people with every step. So David has a decision to make. Fight or flee. Stay and fight the imposter, his son, or flee and fight another day. Decision? Flee and fight another day. And so gathering his household around him, he tells them the situation and begins a hasty and frightened procession eastward, down through the Kidron Valley, over the Mount of Olives, and out into the Judean wilderness towards Jericho and the fords of the Jordan just north of the Dead Sea. Destination? Machanaim. In the Transjordan area of Gilead. He leaves ten of his concubines behind in the palace to look after things. And that's going to come back into the story. So he's on the run, David, sleeping in caves making uh, and in makeshift tents. He's out in the wilderness, nights of fear, days of looking over his shoulder for the dust of Absalom's army, his family and loyal followers trudging along behind him. The news from Jerusalem is not good. Absalom has taken over the palace. He has been acclaimed by the populace that stayed behind. His followers now numbers in the tens of thousands, perhaps the hundreds of thousands. And to top it all off, he has put a bed on the roof of the palace where David had seen Bathsheba. And Absalom has openly slept with all of those ten concubines that David left behind. Just to show that he had the power to do so. But the most devastating part of this is that this was exactly what Nathan the prophet had predicted after David's adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet had said, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives concubines for that matter and give them to one give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with them in broad daylight you did it in secret but i will do this thing in broad daylight before all israel david's humiliation is complete david is in a very bad place He has lost everything, has been publicly humiliated. He weeps, he rages, and he curses. And yes, he curses his enemies. But David is a man of of faith. David prays. David turns to his God in desperation and hope. And this is what he prays. Psalm 3. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes. How many rise up against me. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. So that's the story. That's the story that stands behind the song. It's his cry of lament to God in faith in the midst of brutal pain. His his cry for God to deliver him, deliver him from evil. From the evil one, his own son, Absalom. In many ways, it picks up the Lord's Prayer. When part of the Lord's Prayer is, and deliver us from evil, or deliver us from the evil one. And it's horrific when that evil or evil one is personified in your own son. So let's, let's explore the prayer. Let's just have a quick look at, and see what's there and see what we can learn about what it is for us to pray such a song in the moment of our pain, of our desolation, our despair, and our struggle with what life brings our way. And by the way, we do need to realize that this psalm goes way beyond David. While it is captured in the story of David, and that sets the background The reality is that this psalm got into the canon of Scripture. And this song was sung by the congregation of Israel way beyond David. And they imported their own stories. And then it came into the New Testament. And it became the voice of Jesus. It was his song in the synagogue. And then it became the voice of the church in the first century. And as I said, Paul instructed the church to sing the song. And it continues to speak to the people of God in our day and time. So not only was it the song of the first century church, it is a song of the 21st century church, and it becomes our song. It becomes our story, becomes our response, and it becomes our voice. The song starts with what we call what I would call a cry of despair. He begins with the opening word Yahweh or Lord. Actually it's a vocative that would say, O oh, Lord. And so he is a man of faith. Even though he is going to go into some very dark places, he starts with that reference to his God. He is a man of faith. He is a man of piety. He refers his life back to God, which is a calling on all of us to constantly be referring our lives back to God. But, in that referring of life back to God, and in that moment of piety and faith, coming out of that context, he is brutally honest with God. Three times, we see the phrase, how many? And whenever you see something like that, in, in in the Old Testament text, and especially in poetry, when you see things moving in three parts like that, it's increasing in intensity, and increasing in volume and crescendo. And so you would read it, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? How many are saying of me? And he's increasing his volume and his intensity and he's crying out to God in brutal honesty. He's bearing his heart. He is saying, Come on, oh God, where are you? What are you doing? Hear my voice. For David, that situation was real. Absalom was on the hunt. Later readers and prayers of that psalm, it all fits into new places and new circumstances. It takes on new applications and new usages. And who that foe now is for you and me in the 21st century, who knows what that could be? It's probably not your son chasing you off a throat in Jerusalem. But it could be a pink slip from work. It could be a doctor's diagnosis that says it's cancer. It could be a tough semester or a week at school. Maybe things going sideways at work. Maybe the home front gone bad. Maybe a chronic reality that won't go away. And you know what? That's my story. I don't have time to tell you about that. But the reality that got me into the Psalms in the mid-80s, decades ago, has not gone away. That's why my wife is not with me on this trip. She's at home. Because she can't make it. Oh, Lord. Along how many, along, how many, along, how many. And so we are invited into the presence of God with our stories. We're invited to crash the gates with a cry of despair that's raw and real and intense and increasingly loud. And then we hit the first of what these there are three of them Sila. We have no idea what that word means. We think maybe it's a kind of amen, but we're not quite sure. But I finally did come up with the answer. And there's a wonderful website. I think some of you already read this. There's a wonderful website that you need to get familiar with. It's called the Babylonian Bee. Ah, oh, yes, yeah, some of you know about it. <laughs> and I discovered through the Babylonian B the absolute final answer to what Silah means. And it was an archaeological discovery that somebody found with, a, with a, an inscription that said, dates all the way back to the time of David, that a Silah is an extended guitar solo. So I need someone to come up here, just, just, just rip it, okay? Just come on, just rip it for about two minutes. Sila. <laughs> well, <laughs> the Babylonian Bee makes up a lot of stuff, but it's really, really funny. <laughs> and uh, if you really want some really uh, humorous stuff, a touch sacrilegious at times, but that's okay because I think we need to laugh at ourselves once in a while. Uh, you can check out that website. I have no idea what law" means. <laughs> and it's probably... Well, you know what? And the interesting thing is, it probably is closer to the truth than we think. Because we do think, okay? Uh, so say we don't know what it means. But we do think it means pause and rise. So it's sort of a pause and then everybody stand together to move into the next part. Now, the thing is, there's three of them, so that's a lot of getting up and down. So I don't know quite what that means. But it seems to have that idea of pause and contemplate. And maybe an extended guitar solo would do that well. <laughs> and so we start off with this cry of despair. We pause, Perhaps. But as in Lament Psalms, and there's a typical structure to Lament Psalms that, are, that comes that's typical for all of them in the, uh, in the biblical text. And it, actually, there's a, 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 an ancient Near Eastern it is, uh, structure of Lament Psalms. Not just Israel used some Lament Psalms. We have Lament Psalms from Egypt. We have Lament Psalms from Assyria and Babylon. And they all follow a basic structure. And inevitably, they start out with an address to the God, then a cry of despair, and then it'll, they'll typically go into some kind of confession of trust. And that's what we have next. A confession of... So he begins with this cry of despair. Then he goes to this confession of trust. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. And a shield, of course, was that, that, that picture, that, that image, that metaphor for, for protection and strength and, and defense and that kind of thing. My glory, the one who lifts up my head high. In other words, he is saying... Absalom has got his glory. He's gathered thousands of people around him. It's the same words that's used to describe his hair. He's got his hair as glorious, kavod. But you, O oh Yahweh, you, O oh God, are my glory. So it's a moment of piety. It's a moment of, of confidence and trust. But my glory, the one who lifts up my head, even though I'm on the run, even though I've been dethroned, You are the one who actually exalts me and lifts me up. I don't have to be on that throne. And then he says this. And this is one of the most powerful moments in the song. He says, in the middle of his desperation, out in that wilderness, I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Now, it's very easy to kind of... Pass over that quickly and, and just kind of say, yeah, that, okay, we, when, when, when we pray, God hears our prayers. Please understand something here. David is in a desperate spot, wondering even if God is around. He says, I call to the Lord, and he answers me from where is holy mountain. David has just abandoned the holy mountain. Absalom has just taken over the holy mountain. That's where the palace was. That's where the temple was, or the tabernacle in David's day. And he cries out, and he says, even though I have had to abandon the location where you dwell, O God, you are still there, and you hear my cry. And in David's mind's eye, as he thinks about God, ...enthroned on the holy mountain... ...he begins to think about the tabernacle. And he begins to think about the place where God is enthroned... ...in the holy of holies. And he begins to think about what that holy of holies contained. And it contained a box. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. And on that box, on the top of it, there was blood... Blood that had been taken in once a year by the high priest to bring atonement for his people. And David would have thought of that. There's atonement. There is forgiveness. There is, there is a sacrificial lamb that has brought atonement that will ultimately, and he didn't know that, but ultimately we all know it was fully realized in Christ. And then as he thinks about his God enthroned in the holy mountain of Jerusalem, in that tabernacle and in that box, on that box, inside that box were three things. There was a bowl of manna that reminded David that God had protected and cared for his people in the past. There was a rod, a stick that had budded miraculously reminding David that his God was a miraculous God. There were two tablets of stone with ten words, ten Devarim, written on those tablets of stone, carved into that stone by the finger of God, reminding David that there was an unalterable will of God in the world. And at the end of the box, on each at each end of the box, there was these these weird creatures with with wings that overstretched, overshadowed the box, and they were called cherubim. And these cherubim are the most powerful, frightening creatures that you could have imagined. They had wings and eyes and wheels, according to Ezekiel. But the most terrifying thing about these cherubim was that they had four faces. By the way, at Valentine's, with a little baby whatever sitting on somebody's shoulder shooting bows and arrows when we call them cherubs... Please don't name your kids, hopefully nobody's here is named Cherub, all (laughs) right? These cherubim were terrifying creatures. They had four faces. You can read it in Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, Revelation 4. The face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of an eagle, and the face of a man. And I guarantee if one of these things came swooping in here right now, we'd all be on the floor in mortal terror. Why those four faces? What were those four faces? The face of the lion, the sovereign of the of the wild animals. The face of the ox, the sovereign of domesticated cattle. The face of an eagle, the sovereign of the birds of the air. The face of a man, the sovereign of creation, given that sovereignty by God when he was created as the image bearer of God. And so David was reminded by these terrifying creatures at the end of the box with their wings outstretched over the Kaporeth, over the mercy seat, that his God was sovereign. And in some way, shape, or form he could trust that God. And this is what he says now in verse 5. I lie down and sleep in that wilderness with Absalom in hot pursuit. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. And we know that Absalom was gathering those thousands. And so God answers David from that place, from the holy hill. While while David had been dethroned, God was still on his throne. And David derives that comfort and confidence and trust from that. And you and I do too. Things seem to have gone haywire when our world crashes, God is still on his throne. No, not in Jerusalem, in a tabernacle or temple, but in the heavenly temple where he speaks to us with those very same voices. You would think that the psalm would end at this point. You would think that David would simply say amen and end the psalm. But again, as typical in lament psalms, often it does not end at the part of trust. The psalm moves on. And in fact, after he has given his cry of despair and his confession of trust, he actually intensifies his appeal to God. He's not done yet. What David has experienced is not some trivial little blip in his faith. faith. It is deep, it is painful, it is scorching. And he goes back into lament with even more intensity. And look what he says. And again, I would argue that these are all imperatives. Not, not indicatives, but imperatives. Commands to God. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the te- teeth of the wicked. Whoa. That's a little intense, don't you think? When's the last time you've told God to smuck your foe on the cheek and break their teeth? Not recently, I, I, I'm, suspe- I'm suspicious. Some of you are thinking about the person that might you might want that, that to happen to, but, all right. Wow. And so now we have, a, we have the cry of despair, we, we have the, the confession of trust, but now we have this, what you might call a demand for deliverance. I demand that God step up, and He doesn't mince His words. Get up, get going, be the saving God that you claim to be, four times, including a fist or a club to the face. Now that little section in in in, in biblical studies and in Psalm studies, that little those little those lines there about the fist or the club to the face, break the teeth. Is what we call an imprecation. Sometimes some of you are familiar with imprecatory psalms or imprecations in the psalms. And the word imprecation means curse. And it's rooted in a very important idea in the Old Testament and in the New, namely the the, uh, Abrahamic covenant. And if you remember, when God gave the covenant to David's forefather, Abraham, he said, I will bless those that bless you and what those that what you. I will bless those that bless you and... Curse those that curse you. What is David doing? He is simply calling upon God to be true to his word in the covenant that he had made with his forefather, Abraham. And He is calling upon God to be true to his word in that Abrahamic covenant. Now, I know there's complexities here in terms of Jesus saying you love your enemy. I, I know there's a lot of complexity on that kind of thing. But, the reality is that even us as a church today, that Paul calls the new Israel, and that Paul calls the inheritors of the, Davidic, of, the, of the Abrahamic covenant, you can read about it in Romans 4, Galatians 4, and other texts, that this actually is a voice that we have. Now, it's not having to do with personal vendettas, this isn't something that we use in our, in our personal ideas. It's not something that we take into our own hands. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But we do speak when we are attacked by the forces and people of evil and the evil one as God's kingdom and church in the world. And I think it's very much a communal reality. This is a voice that God has given the people of God to give voice to the call for justice. The call for for vindication of the righteous. Both values that God has, has ordained as good. And so we give ourselves a voice and we are honest with God and we use language that is poetic, evocative, passionate, and necessary so we begin with a cry of despair we confess to God that we trust him and we think that perhaps the psalm should end there but it doesn't we demand and we are passionate and poignant in our demand but now we come to the final word of the psalm verse 8 from the Lord comes deliverance May your blessing be upon your people. We make our final conclusion of hope and confidence. And it's interesting. Three times in the psalm the word deliverance is used. Clearly that is the theme. It's woven through the psalm. David is saying, I realize that ultimately and finally, even though I am on the run right now, ultimate deliverance, Comes from God, and he quietly and humbly affirms that in somehow he doesn't know how this is all going to end. We know that it does end well. We know that there's a battle, and his his forces defeat the, the forces of Absalom, Absalom, and he is put back on his throne. We know that the story ends well, but David doesn't know that yet. And still, he's able to say, humbly and quietly, that that deliverance will come to him from God. And even though we don't know what the outcome will look like, this is the last word that we sing and we pray. So, as I think about this, as I think about the story behind the psalm, as I think about the psalm itself, these are the thoughts that come to mind. The first one is this. Isn't it fascinating? Jesus sang and prayed this song. I find that very intriguing. This was his song. It was the psalm of the synagogue. He grew up singing it and praying it, all of it. With all the passion that, that we have talked about. These are Jesus' words of prayer and worship. And that says something to me. Because we are called to the way of Jesus. And part of the way of Jesus is to sing and pray this psalm, and all the rest in the Psalter, for that matter. Secondly, a thought that strikes me is that there's amazing good news here. Amazing good news. The victimized, the broken, and the and the failed and flawed. In a psalm like this, we have a voice of victims of violence and justice have a voice. In the pain and passion of this psalm, there's redemption. Redemption in that call and cry and demand and command are there. Redemption in the knowledge that God hears and acts. Redemption that we find in the hope that we can find, hope and blessing from God. And this is good news. This psalm is amazing good news. It is part of the gospel that we proclaim to ourselves in the world third thing that strikes me as I think about this psalm is, this really changes the way I think about stuff. This changes the way I think about worship. changes the way I think about my relationship with God and and, and the openness that that I can have and enjoy with God. This is a voice of authentic spirituality. It is the voice of the way of Jesus. This is the voice of what it is to be a disciple and an apprentice of Jesus. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking about spirituality in a whole new way. And unfortunately, a way that's not talked talked a lot about in the church. And so how then do we respond? I don't know you. I don't know your stories. So I can't tell you how to respond. Besides, that's the job of the Spirit, anyhow. It's not my job. And I simply say to you, bring your story into this. Allow the psalm to wash over you. Hear it in a new and fresh way. And allow the Spirit to give you the courage to cry and the heart so what we'd like to do is the worship band is going to come now and they're going to actually play the psalm through using the words of the psalm. And while they're doing that, I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. And as they're singing and playing Psalm 3, use this as kind of a moment of you know, what we might call Lectio Divina. And let those words wash over you, follow them in your Bibles, and hear them one more time as we sing and play them for you.